0: Welcome to the Axial podcast. Axial is an early-stage investment firm based in San Francisco. We partner with great founders and inventors investing in early-stage life science companies often when they are no more than an idea. Axial is fanatical about helping the rare inventor who's compelled to build their own enduring business. For the first podcast, we have Cameron Pye and Joshua Shosher, the founders of Anantra Products. Combining AI and medicinal chemistry, Company has built a platform to drug the indruggable. In our conversation, we cover the journey from the lab to building a company, the history of natural products, and the future of drug development. Hope you enjoy this great conversation with Cam and Josh. Hey, Cameron. Hey, Josh. Oh, how are you? Thanks for the podcast. This is uh, the very first one. Thanks for taking the time.
1: Well, thanks for having us, Josh. I'm excited to be uh, the, the first guest here.
0: Awesome. So we've known each other for, I think, around three to four years now. Um, and I met you two when you were kind of raising the pre-seed round. And, yeah, just really, just really awesome to see all the progress you made over, over that time period, going from, you know, two you know, scientists in the laboratory to, you know, a company of, what, 10, 20 people and just a bunch of partnerships and programs and development. Um, yeah, maybe you can give us a quick overview on... Uh, a natural products, the company, how you, how you guys how you guys got started, the vision of the company, you know, stuff like that. Even the history of natural products would be interesting as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. No, looking forward to it. Yeah, it's been been a while. We've known each other since we were, uh, yeah, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, fresh out of grad school. I think you know we look back at some of the old patch decks recently and uh, some pretty garish. Overly scientific graphics, uh, brutal PowerPoint slides that, that we used to think was a pitch deck. Uh, and compared to, to the polished and designed ones we have now, it's a uh, it's fun fun to to look back over that time frame. So uh, looking forward to telling the history here.
2: Yeah, but you know, surprisingly, I think the visions really uh, the same now as it was back then. Um, if you can interpret the uh, the bad grad student vision of what a uh, a good pitch deck looks like.
1: But yeah, maybe. Um, yeah, we can just kind of start talking a little bit about kind of how it all began uh, and then the transition uh, to what we're building uh, and, and yeah, maybe cut in uh, with questions as, uh, as you see fit, Josh. But um, yeah, basically Josh and I met each other in grad school uh, going on, well, I guess we met each other on the grad school visit um, going on probably 11 years ago at this point, which is crazy to say out loud. Uh, and both wound up in Scott Loki's lab at UCSC to do our PhDs in the chemistry department, biochemistry department there. And yeah, I came in really wanting to do like total organic synthesis. I thought that was going to be the coolest thing I could do um, because it was what I had done my undergrad research in. I think Josh, what was your focus?
2: Yeah. You know, I, I was excited about UCSC because of their structural biology program in RNA. Uh, You know, looking back 10, 11 years ago, the spliceosome was kind of the final frontier, and this was before real cryo EM. And uh, UCSC has Harry Noller, who did, you had a big part in the ribosome. And so I was like, oh, you know, I'm going to come to UCSC and help crack the spliceosome. And, you know, the program we were in had a rotation system where you're kind of forced to work in multiple labs your first year. And kind of as an afterthought, just for fun. I tried Scott Loki's lab as my last rotation, and, you know, he kind of does this chemical biology, trying to understand how to make molecules to modulate biology from a chemist's point of view, and that's really what I fell in love with, the idea that you could basically design compounds from the ground up to modulate biology in unique uh, and interesting ways, and then use that as a tool both to understand how biology does what it does, but then ultimately create therapeutics.
1: Yeah, I think I... I came in, uh, and the organic chemistry track still had the ritual hazing uh, that was a part and parcel for that that degree. Some of which was these cumulative exams that the professors were these like bonus exams that you took on Saturday mornings. They were ruthlessly hard. You had to get a sixty percent was a same grade on like four out of twelve of them. And uh, Scott's questions that he asked were always like the most interesting. The papers he assigned, I, I really kind of fell in love with, and. And yeah, just this kind of general idea of, you know, we understand a lot of the kind of the general framework of biology, but how you actually start to pick and pull and see where you can push and prod that that system into a place you want it to be, maybe from a place it isn't, is, is really through these chemical tool compounds that we can uh, dose in cells and, and animals and, uh, and hopefully eventually turn them into drugs. And uh, Scott's Scott's lab is all about doing that um, and kind of pushing the the next frontier of chemical biology from a chemistry focused perspective. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I wound my way in that lab as well. Um, I actually, yeah, like I said, came in to be a chemist and then I was, I think I was helping Scott, like, install Microsoft Office on his Apple computer and he was impressed with my uh, IT acumen and he was like, hey, do you want to be a computational chemist because we have a spot open and you can put your name on it. And, uh, and so he bought me a nice computer and, and whatever software licenses I wanted and uh, <clears throat> kind of became a self-taught uh, mathematician uh, and then luckily under the tutelage of some other great folks. And so, yeah, that kind of became our two, two focuses in grad school, Josh a little bit more, chemistry with a biology edge um, and me a little bit more chemoinformatics um, with the occasional uh, dip into the chemistry lab. Um, and and yeah, I think one of the other things that was kind of unique about our PhDs was was really that Scott's lab was almost entirely funded through these pre-competitive pharma collaborations. So uh, Josh's first program was was solving a, a synthetic mystery with a bunch of crack team of uh, a chemist over at Pfizer uh, on on a particular uh, program that we had been collaborating with. I wound up working with uh, Roche and, and Eli Lilly, um, and we had postdocs from Daichi Sankyo and Lilly in the lab. Um, we, you know, and Metamune uh, did a project that I was involved with as well. And so we just had this really like pleasantly industry focused gaze um, throughout our every tower research. Uh, and, and I think that let us know that what we were studying was directly applicable to um, the kind of market writ large out there uh, and, and kind of gave us the confidence to start on natural products in the first place. But yeah, maybe we could discuss a little bit of the science that we were working on in Scott's lab or any Absolutely. other. Absolutely. Uh,
0: that's, that's, I didn't know that part of the story cam where that's how you got roped into the computational work. Uh, that makes a total sense in terms of the number of papers you're on. was <laughs> <That is> really <laughs> impressive. I think you're on like 12 papers in grad school or like a four year time span. And you know, that's kind of the hallmark of a comp bio person, right? Cause they're, have their hands in everything
2: yeah Um, Yeah. it's really interesting seeing the evolution in scott's lab of people like cam and then some grad students after starting to learn how to code and even just being able to manipulate data that's larger and more complex than what you can do in excel it really quickly changes the even just the design of experiments you know you you when you're designing a new experiment in scott's lab during our time it was all about data you know how do we get larger data sets of of compounds so that we can start to pull apart these structural property relationships and you know if you're imagining the final step of the process is manually crunching through thousands and thousands of data points you just don't even design that as a project um and unlike bioinformatics where there's a really mature field cheminformatics is kind of a little bit more on the fringes and you know, Cameron developing some of these computational tools really shifted our mindset into how we could design experiments. And I think that's really instrumental in the advances we made in Scott's lab and then now kind of in the DNA of, of UMP.
0: Absolutely. So maybe you can kind of give us a high-level overview in terms of what macrocycles are.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, maybe just, yeah, rewinding a little bit the work we were doing in, in, uh, in Scott's lab was, yeah, largely uh, focused on this unique... Chemical structural class called macrocycles, and as that name might suggest, it's it's a large ring-like structure. Uh, In fact, I think the like classical definition is a a compound which contains a ring of eleven atoms or greater, um, which isn't particularly exciting in its own right. Um, But what's unique about these things is that they can kind of break the rules of traditional medicinal chemistry, Uh, and that you know over past 100 years or so of developing small molecules you know there's been some kind of rules of thumb uh, that the medicinal chemists have learned to kind of create successful quote-unquote molecules uh, some of these were you know retrospectively learned some of them from the you know first principles but in general um, one of the central tenets is you got to keep them less than molecular weight 500 daltons uh, and that means that these compounds are usually pretty small uh, and lo- one of the reasons for doing that is that so that they can slip across your cell membranes, uh, and access the inside of the cell. But the nature kind of threw out that rulebook, or never had to learn it in the first place, because uh, she's, a, she's a pretty good chemist. And uh, one of the molecular classes that kind of evolved uh, out uh, in the wild were these large ring-like structures that were able to do uh, something unique. They could be quite a bit larger than your typical small molecule, uh, up around molecular weight a thousand or greater. So you know, over twice the traditional kind of cutoffs for us, um, mere mortals. And then uh, they were still able to cross cell membranes and and survive out in the wild. You know, these things. Uh, a lot of our antibiotics fit largely into this class. Things like erythromycin and vancomycin. Uh, and then one's kind of subclass of macrocycles that we're particularly particularly interested in are these. Uh, cyclic peptides. So these large uh, rings that are composed of mostly amide bonds. Uh and, and kind of examples here are cyclosporin A is like the poster child in the space as an immunosuppressive drug uh, that we've been using for decades. Um, and what makes those particularly interesting is that you know of things that are guaranteed to be the least drug-like and and the least cell permeable. Uh, large peptides usually fit the bill, I think, if you ask a traditional medicinal chemist. Uh, but but once again, uh nature's not your traditional medicinal chemist. And so uh, the beautiful thing about peptides is that they're really modular uh, and actually lend themselves to design uh, and synthesizability uh, quite well. Um, they were really good at forming anandram dons and based on some, some great uh, Nobel Prize winning chemistry, actually, uh, by Merrifield. Uh, we have some Synthetic tricks called solid phase synthesis that allow us to make a lot of these things really quickly. Um, so there's a huge, like, kind of attractive uh, reason to be in the peptide space. The problem is, it's just they've never looked like drugs. Um, but but it turns out, you know, we've had these examples from nature for a long time that showed it's possible. It was just a matter of balancing properties. So, you know, our research in Scott's lab was unpacking those cyclosporins of the world uh, and and seeing what made them kind of tick from a from a biophysics perspective. Um, so both, you know, Josh did some fantastic, like, spectroscopic work and, and really trying to understand them at a really fine-grained structural level. Or I did some kind of theory work and some broad breaststrokes, um, more like combinatorial chemistry and, and modeling of those things. And uh, and kind of what the the takeaway was was that we had, of at least uh, learned to emulate nature's uh, toolbox to a well enough degree that we could translate this kind of rule-breaking behavior, cell permeability into macrocycle space uh, in purely synthetic contexts. Uh, that really kind of like opened the door for us. I think that was the aha moment um, was when we started making these large data sets of passively cell membrane permeable, synthetic cyclic peptides uh, that that were You know, crossing cell membranes. Uh, The only trick was they didn't do anything when they got inside the cell. These were just, you know, kind of contrived model systems. But um, but yeah, that was kind of the aha moment for saying, hey, we're going to be able to train some machine learning models on these data sets, use some of the same chemistry tricks that Josh had been developing to make these large libraries, uh, and then apply that to this kind of iterative. Uh, you know, predict and synthesize and check a cycle that we could use to hopefully design some really interesting uh, drug uh, like properties into these large rings against really attractive intracellular targets.
0: That makes a ton of sense. And I know it's a, little, it's a longer story, but what was the premise to start a company? Like, what got you the courage to, uh, you know, during, while in Scott Loki's lab at Santa Cruz, say, hey, maybe we should start a company? How did that conversation get started? And and, and what was that kind of initial premise?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, at one level, the premise of of Scott's work was if we could make truly synthetic cyclic peptides behave like natural products, we'd be able to address, you know, a huge number of these drug targets that had gone unaddressed simply because we couldn't get chemistry that balanced, you know, potent target engagement with drug-like properties. And, you know, when Cam and I joined Scott's lab, if you found a purely synthetic cyclic peptide or macrocycle that was cell permeable that was a paper in and of itself just that single data point that hey hey look we could whether it was by dumb luck or engineering may make a compound from nature and when we left scott's lab we were routinely making libraries of thousands of cyclic peptides with a variety of structures that had cell permeability favorable water solubility other drug like properties and so it really felt like by the end of our PhDs, we had seen kind of that inflection point from being able to simplistically mimic nature to creating large number of compounds that really had the property that we've been searching for. And so we, we felt that technologically, we were at the right point in time to start, um, you know, using this in a therapeutic context.
1: And then I think from a kind of business and market perspective, kind of the the courage or the hubris uh, to forego um, some soft job offers and, and the traditional postdoc path and, and go the, the lonely road of entrepreneurialism was that you know we would go to these conferences that were pretty dominated by by pharma um, you know either pharma talks or biotech talks and and where some of these other macrocycle discovery platform technologies were getting kind of hawked and uh, and we could see kind of the that there was just this missing link um, between. What pharma wanted and and what the current technological offerings were, uh, and and really it was it was Scott's research um, and a way to really reduce it to practice and make it scalable. So I think you know whether it was uh, whether it was listening to the talks and and you know throwing stones and glass houses as uh, academics asking questions afterwards, or or grabbing beers with the folks um, after hours at the conferences and just kind of asking uh, what was holding up the adoption of this molecular class. Um, we realized that, that it was really the technologies we could build um, based on our current know-how and understanding that Josh said was really nascent. I mean, it it happened during our PhD um, work, and, and uh, you know, to some extent, was was Josh and I's uh, contribution to the field. So I think, I think that was kind of the the impetus to do it was really just kind of getting uh, the snapshot of where things were and seeing the the hunger and desire for it, but just kind of the inability to execute um, and and knowing that we had a technical solution to that problem. And, you know, in a lot of ways, I think, you know, Josh alluded to this, but it's like both halves of the coin were, were kind of proved out. It was just, it was like, how do you put these two things together? One, we had these natural products examples. So we knew this was possible, right? Like nature had figured out a way to do this. And we were using these things as therapeutics. So we know that it can be safe and effective in humans. Uh, and the other side of the equation was these undruggable targets that we've known about for Decades, You know, things like KRAS, which has been in the news lately with uh, Amgen's compound, but MIC and P53, beta catena, and all these kind of core drivers of oncology that we've known about, but we just haven't had drugs to actually go after um, from a chemistry perspective. And so we saw, you know, macrocycles as being the, the kind of through line to, to connect um, both this biology that we wanted to drug... Uh, and we finally had a technical solution to translate kind of what nature had cooked up uh, into the lab in a, in a designable and repeatable fashion.
0: What's the natural products up to now? You know, what are you excited about for the company? What are the kind of major highlights? You know, what, do you, what, do you, what do you see on the, the roadmap for uh, what you're building?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think. You know, as we spun out, like we said, we kind of had this know-how and data sets and idea of how, do you, uh, how to leverage those into tools, um, both synthetic and, and in silico. in the case of these machine learning models. I think, you know, what we did um, since then is really, you know, reduce that know-how to practice and and really adopt this kind of, if it can be automated, it should be automated kind of mantra uh, inside the organization. So, you know, I think this notion that, like, Zymergen, Uses and uh, industrializing the process. I think you know we set out to do that really from the get go of saying that hey, this chemistry lends itself to parallelism, so let's make it parallel right from the get go. Um, you know, any data that we produce uh, should be you know captured uh, in a structured format that we can feed straight back into models. Uh, the front and back end of that process, both design and the data capture and interpretation should be um, as automated as possible from a software perspective. And so we just set out you know building uh, various tools to to really allow that process to happen. Um, some of that was in the early days in the in the garage, uh, me writing code, Josh uh, mapping out uh, some of what those synthetic strategies were going to be. Uh, and then when we got underway in the lab it was it was really translating that um, into, into a set of tools and a platform uh, that that could do macrocycle medchem, uh, which has really been that that blockade I was talking about previously, um, was really how do we how do we engineer those properties into these macrocycles? Um, turns out they're really robust ways of identifying cyclic peptides that bind interesting uh, targets. That that hasn't been the hard part um, of the problem to date. Uh, so we could pick up some of these broken macro cycles from the public domain that bound a hard target but couldn't get there uh, and then start to start to work on them uh, and, and what working on it means is you know improve changes to that chemical structure uh, using these machine learning models that that will improve permeability and other properties while hopefully maintaining or improving target engagement uh, and then synthesizing several hundred compounds based off that premise uh, in the lab um, and and then testing those in a variety of different systems uh, and feeding that data back in the next round of design. Um, so P53, we mentioned earlier, is one of these quote unquote undruggable targets. Uh, we were going after that with one of our first programs uh, through, through drugging the interaction with it and its negative regulators, MDM2 and MDM4, um, which has been traditionally a, an undruggable target to be able to hit both of those uh, simultaneously. And, uh, and we did just that, we arrived at some, <clears throat> excuse me, bi-specific compounds that, that were able uh, to be cell permeable, ostensibly look like small molecules, except for the fact um, that they they were hitting these these undruggable targets. Um, yeah, and since then we've gone on to do it uh, with with partners as well. So I think, you know, like we said, those those technologies for identifying uh, potent cyclic peptide binders have found their ways into the hands of of many pharma's, large and small. Uh, Peptidream, a company out of uh, Japan, uh, really pioneered this mRNA display uh, technology, and it, it's it's wound up at, at pretty much all major large pharma's. Some of which did full tech transfer deals. So, uh, you know, we're picking up uh, where that platform leaves off internally with with some partners there. Got got a few others uh, in the works, hopefully. So, stay stay tuned on that and. Uh, and then internally are, are tackling some of those other undruggable targets. So KRS-G12D, uh, we have a program that's, that's alive and well, uh, really excited by Amgen and I think soon to be Meratis and, and other progress uh, against uh, G12C. But uh, that was kind of the quote-unquote easy mutant of of the KRS uh, mutant family. And, uh, and unfortunately, those covalent strategies uh, won't work against some of these other more challenging mutants like D&D, uh, which we're currently cracking. So yeah, I think... You know that's that's kind of the long and the, the short of it um, was was really taking that know-how and and uh, some of those data sets um, that, from from our academics building tools around those uh, continuing to add to them every day of course and then then like building a team that could leverage those to, to really do some best-in-class work against what are essentially the most valuable oncology targets
0: absolutely really inspiring What do you see as your core metric or set of metrics for your platform you're building?
1: Yeah, I think it's not as crystal clear as just kind of like data points or a number of compounds synthesized. It's really, you know, one of the things that's been challenging about cyclic peptides and macrocycles in general is is that we're actually pretty data poor, Um, unlike a lot of the quote-unquote AI and drug discovery companies going after uh, typically small molecules where there are these publicly available and then private uh, data sets that some get access to just you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands to millions of compounds characterized in a wide variety of assays, um, that doesn't exist for cyclic peptides and macrocycles. So we've really had to build it ourselves. Um, and so it's really about what data points you build, uh, and and kind of which assays uh, you ask questions in that we found is actually the most uh, important, rather than the sheer number of, of data points, just because we're we're kind of up against a a, a disservice to uh, to to time, I think, in in the in the small molecule versus macrocycle uh, landscape.
2: Um, but you know, one thing that was kind of one of the first technologies we built at UNP was, you know, these large cyclic peptides, macrocycles aren't really treated well, like Cam was saying, because of a lack of data by the models people would use for small molecules. So there wasn't really a great model to predict. Cyclic peptide macrocycle permeability, um, definitely not from a two dimensional structure. You know, there's all these for a long time we've had QSAR and QSPR, where in the small molecule space you can put in a, a, a two dimensional structure and then out comes a whole bunch of predicted properties. Well, that really didn't exist for um, these larger compounds, these macrocycles. So, based on those data sets we've built in Scott's lab, we created some new models that let us predict. Um, Macrocycle permeability, um, at least vaguely. And the great part about that is it lets us see how far off are the cyclic peptides that other platform technologies produce. And because the molecules are so much larger, they can be a lot worse. And it's hard to tell that just from visual inspection. So when we pick up a compound from another discovery technology that's out in the public domain, in a patent, in a partner, you know, they're often off by log units. And I mean like 10, 15, 20 log units sometimes away from values that are actually drug-like in the permeability um, sector. And this is because of a lot of polarity, excess molecular weight, excess charge. Um, and so for our projects, you know, you could, the dynamic range of the actual assays is only a few log units. So when we're running a project like our KRAS project, we can see ourselves make jumps, literally million fold um, towards drug-like properties. And you know these models are really the compass that let us know that we're making headway outside of what you can observe. So those are really exciting metrics because you know we're kind of unique in our ability to, to understand peptide permeability across a really large um, chemical structure space. And so that's one metric that gets us excited when we say, hey, we made these modifications, look, that's a thousand fold, 10,000, a hundred thousand fold progress towards our ultimate goal of, you know, these compounds being permeable like small molecules.
1: Yeah. Funny anecdote. We were talking with uh, one of our partners and we were really excited because yeah, we're charting progress across this, uh, this modeled space, which, you know, we have a lot of confidence in, uh, those partners, you know, it was our first, first engagement with them. They're still, uh, kicking the tires on the technology. And, uh, We were zooming out a little bit and we said hey look you know we've synthesized you know close to 1500 compounds over the duration of this you know we've come from uh you know a predicted trillion fold increase on on cell permeability um, from the starting point that the partner had given us and uh and and the senior scientists on the call leaned back and kind of gruffly said well you know cam a trillion times zero still zero and, uh, and it turns out, you know, it wasn't zero. It was point zero 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 one. because uh, the next week, we got to observably permeable binders uh, in, on that program series. So, uh, you know, it's, it's like moments like that where, where we alone kind of have the, the metric where we can kind of understand the progress that we're, that we're making uh, and then to see it bear out, um, you know, and time and time again on these different programs. It's, it's just super gratifying as a scientist and, and a founder.
0: Absolutely, I think kind of designing the right experiments
1: for and and and,
0: and models for macrocycles, you know, kind of can create these kind of massive leaps in in predictive power. You know, maybe one metric, kind of, it would be like if you could if you could synthesize a thousand compounds, you know, how many how many piece years is that? Maybe ten million or something.
1: <laughs>
2: yeah. I mean? yeah. <laughs> the uh, no, that's funny because actually, you know, this the the synthesis platform we have internally. Um, the first time we ran a synthesis on it, I think I made 80 compounds simultaneously and it took maybe a week just by myself. And I turned to Cam and I said, well, I've made about 60 compounds in five years as a PhD student. So I already, you know, more, made more compounds in a week than I had during my whole PhD. So yeah, for a while we were tracking the number of PhDs we had made in <laughs>
0: That's awesome. Uh, and then the last point, I think the part that I really like about, what you're building beyond the technology is just where you're building it you know you made a decision to locate in Santa Cruz and keep the company there and very early on you know or, you know there was some push for you to move maybe move to Palo Alto or something but you've kept the company in santa Cruz um what's been the what's been your experience in Santa Cruz and you know what do you see as the kind of like the opportunities and challenges to, you know, especially recruiting executives and whatnot? Uh, to build a biotech company and say, quote, unquote, a
1: non-hub like San Francisco or Boston? Yeah, no, I mean, I think we're not the only ones to do this. You know, I think uh, you mentioned Recursion earlier, and I think they made uh, a a similar pitch. I remember being inspired when they uh, did the release that they had bought an old Dick's sporting goods store and had a three-story climbing wall in their their headquarters. I think uh, we're not quite there yet, but but what we do have is, is, yeah, about a a thousand foot walk to Natural Bridges Strait Park, which is a beautiful uh, coastal park uh, right on right around the corner from us. And and you know I think some of the same things that Recursion uses in their recruiting, uh, we use in ours too, which is that you know I think science is ultimately a creative art, um, and and that you know there's a the quest to reduce it to engineering, um, which which again I think you know we're we're on that spectrum as well, but but it's best when you can recharge the batteries and, and really find people um, that, that know how to do that. And I think, you know, work hard, but also stay creative and passionate. That's like when good science happens and it helps if you're in a beautiful place um, with, with like-minded people to do that. And, and I think Santa Cruz has that uh, kind of, you know, ethos to it. The other thing it has is, is kind of the, the diamond in the rough you see, I would say, which is that you see Santa Cruz is kind of this, goldilocks institution where it's large enough that it has like best in class resources fantastic faculty you know like bioinformatics is, is obviously a legendary uh, since we were the first to sequence the human genome but but also structural biology and and uh, chemistry legends have all gone through there and and because of that a bunch of you know great grad students and postdocs come uh, to work in the university fall in love with the town and then uh, there's not a lot of biotechs as of yet in Santa Cruz, and so we get to kind of skim the cream of the crop off of uh, off of UCSC and get the uh, the yellowest banana slugs uh, from from that uh, down down at work, and and it's it's really been fantastic for building the R and D team uh, in house, uh, and and I think just you know people come here, they want to be here. They're not looking like across the street in the dog patch, at, at, or across the hallway at you know J Labs, uh, wondering if they should be at that other startup. Uh, you know, they they want to come to work um, and and do their job uh, in, in, in that creative and kind of a you know laughter filled environment that, that I think we have here at UMP. So I think it's it's actually been you know I would say there are more advantages than challenges um, building here. You make a great point about you know executive recruiting. I think that the one silver lining also of, of the pandemic has shown us that we're actually uh, all pretty capable of remote work, particularly for for jobs where we don't need to be on premises. So I think there are more folks in the driving distance of Santa Cruz or in Santa Cruz uh, that, that fit the uh, fit the bill for executives by second otherwise. Uh, actually, Ahmed Hamdi is a San, Santa Cruz local, and, and he was the uh, CMO at ACERTA uh in pharmacyclics before that and just founded Vincera therapeutics. So I think, you know, there's there's more in your backyard than you might think. And then it's actually really easy to build a uh, a team that, that isn't necessarily all on prem these days, um, for for positions that don't necessarily need to be. Um so I think, you know, we're we're building kind of a, a modern biotech and and some of that's distributed and, and some of that's uh consolidated here in Santa Cruz. Yeah
0: you to be one of the cool companies in an area, especially with world-class talent, you get to monopolize talent. So it's like very, very advantageous. I think in drug development, the, the counter case study is uh, Array Biopharma. You know, Pfizer kind of got a deal with them. And if Array wasn't based in Colorado, but based in Boston, you know, maybe Array would be much larger or maybe it would be acquired at a much higher price. And Array's issue was, historically, was recruiting executives. So I think hopefully this remote work remains and, you know, getting executive talent which doesn't need to be on premise it's easier but you know to wrap up the podcast you know, one thing we want to start doing is is uh, asking two questions for every guest so then over time you know, maybe comparisons can be made um but the first question is you know out of this whole story which is really awesome what's been the kind of the single most valuable lesson you've learned while building a ump
1: yeah one of my uh one of my takeaways is Is everything's negotiable, (laughs) and in the early days, it's tough to see that. There's a lot of things that seem like they're lines in the sand. I would say that's that's true with like yourself and and outside deals as well. That like a lot of times, I think, particularly as PhD founders, you draw these really firm lines around like what you're trying to build um, or, or who you want to do it with, and and some of these things. But you realize that that you know much like science it doesn't always work out the way you plan on paper um and and some things are actually more advantageous so i think that you know everything's negotiable don't ever take uh, a deal at face value uh whether you're making that deal with yourself or with someone else but josh you have something else
2: yeah yeah i mean i think you know academia is interesting right because you're you're a single grad student or postdoc in a lab and it's not lord of the flies but there is some element of you drive your own thing forward yourself and you know we were very collaborative but i think a lot of times the the thought is kind of do as much as you can yourself because you want to have as much ownership less authors on the paper the better and you know here i think i've really learned the value of of, of teamwork in science where we have built this great r d team and having everyone together thinking about the same hard problem and just you know, months of concerted effort by a bunch of smart folks on a problem, you can crack really hard problems that, you know, no amount of individuals doing their PhD would ever crack. So I think that's been really cool to see the transition from academia to industry where it's much more team focused and you can, you know, you run into a wall and maybe you can't find a way around it, but enough hard effort and you just kind of blow your way through it.
0: Absolutely. I think, uh, you know, science has rules, you know, there's rules to science. You can't break break them, and that's kind of makes it really hard. Business has no rules. There's only one rule in business, just be ethical. And that's it. So as long as you're ethical, you can do whatever you want. It's just you know, you just gotta, you know, like you said, can be be a good negotiator. What are you two looking forward to this year?
1: Oh man, there's there's so much. I mean, it's 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 funny because, you know, some of our friends ask us how things are going and we're always just so excited we got this great data rolling in i mean josh I, I kid you not is scrolling through data on his laptop right now as, as we're doing this
2: <laughs> podcast
1: <laughs> but uh and our friends are always like man it just always seems like there's good data coming in we're like well i mean it's you know good data that punctuates like the moments of, of you know falling flat or abject failure but uh, but with enough like that like Josh said, the team that's coming together and the science and the general thesis working—it just seems like there's something exciting happening uh, every day. If someone's excited about something, and uh, I think for us, there are a few things on the horizon that that I think are are really uh, getting keeping me up at night in a good way. One one is yeah, some new partners coming online. I think uh, with some some really exciting biology to work on, uh, and and should be fun fun to work with that group. And then uh, some some technologies in house. Um, like I mentioned that, that, you know, uh, novo discovery is quote unquote, uh, a solved art and, in, in this, uh, space through some fantastic technologies. Well, uh, we're riffing on a few of those and uh, got some really exciting early data that I think is just going to make us uh, be able to really point the UMP cannon, uh, at, at any biology of interest and, uh, and see it fall, um, to this approach. So I think, you know, both just, and, and then, you know, really seeing the team continue to grow and and, uh, and, and both capability um, and, and number, I think, you know, it's just such a fantastic uh, gift to be able to come to work every day uh, and just work with this, like, passionate group of, of scientists and operators uh, and just kind of feel that excitement and buzz. Uh, and to have more of that just seems uh, unfair, but uh, I'm looking forward to it, so... But yeah, um, absolutely.
0: So I'm 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 more looking forward to just the news that's already done that's yet to be announced, and so uh, look, uh, I'm looking forward to announcing some big news for UMP uh, over the next few months. I think that's gonna for me that's probably the, the biggest thing in the company. But uh, uh, maybe to uh, last thing, do you have any plugs for UMP? You know, are you hiring for any positions?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we are hiring um, always. I would say, um, you know, both. On the wet lab front, so I think chemists uh, and and biologists are, are always uh, always particularly peptide chemists. If you got some peptide experience, it never never hurt. And uh, if you've got a little uh, high throughput uh, ilk to your to your biology, then that's uh, appreciated as well. Um, and then computational too. I mean, uh, you know, computer uh and and out and out developers um, for for working on the the tools and and. Uh, and yeah, if uh, anyone's listening to this at at pharma and is tired of uh, decision committees and being stuck in the morass of you know Kenilworth, New Jersey, or or some other uh, place like that, then yeah, you know, give us the line. Maybe yeah, uh, maybe there's something to be done. So
2: yeah, yeah, we really I think try and hire opportunistically. Where of course we hire to fill specific needs, but you know great passionate people who are interested in in problem solving with with a team of of uh, you know really. I think interested and engaged folks—that's who we're looking for. So you know, we'll we'll find a place for you if uh, if if you've got the the UMP ethos in you already.
0: That's good. Right. Awesome guys. Well, thanks for doing this today. I I, I learned a ton. Learned some tidbits about a national parks I didn't know. And uh, yeah, I'm always very excited to talk to you too. And so uh, you're always welcome here.
1: Oh uh, thanks for having us, Josh. It's uh, it's yeah, just been a pleasure. Uh, having you partnered with our natural products for so long. And uh, congratulations on everything you're building here at Axial. Looking forward to see where I really, I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's kind of, uh, I think you have to be a good
0: investor, a good analyst, and then, you know, help your customers, which are, you know, you and other scientists and founders. And then, you know, another element, you got to become an influencer. And so, uh, you know, I'm trying to, I've been, I'm about two years into social media, right? I've never used Facebook or anything. So it's, uh, I, I kind of, uh, doing stuff that makes you feel uncomfortable a bit because it's important. Uh, but yeah, this is this is always really fun. I'm gonna, uh, you know, look forward to kind of doing a follow up, maybe in a year, uh, and maybe do some recurring thing. <laughs> That'd right. be really cool. But uh,
1: where are they now?
0: <laughs> exactly. Where are they now? We'll do like a follow up study. Uh, uh, <laughs> but thanks, guys. I really
1: appreciate it.
2: Uh, yeah. Thanks a lot, Josh. All right.
1: You have a good one.